Welcome back to the Arizona Wildlife Federation podcast. My name is Michael and I am your host. And it has been a bit since I last got to chat with you all. We've been on a little bit of a break here. Uh, but boy, there's been a lot of big stuff going on since since I've been on this break. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you just a couple noteworthy pieces. One I'll start with, our family squirrel camp hosted by Arizona Backcountry Hunters and Anglers and the Arizona Wildlife Federation was an absolute smashing success. Uh, we had over 40 attendees over the course of the weekend. Some experienced hunters, some brand new, but all wonderful people. This camp, it, it had it all. Uh, we had, let's see, we had a small game hunting in Arizona talk from our own Arizona Game and Fish Department's small game program manager, Larissa Harding. We had a wild game potluck dinner that was simply out of this world. Such a good spread. We had a flintlock muzzleloader program. We had a squirrel processing and cooking demos, of course. And, you know, for me, the icing on the cake was a falconry presentation and hunt put on by Sky Islands Falconry. Oh my lord, that was just the coolest thing in the world, and I haven't been able to stop thinking about it since. These birds are amazing, and folks from Sky Island Falconry are just intelligent, well-spoken, and they are good with those birds. So I would recommend reaching out to Sky Island's Falconry, because they, they provide hunts, they provide programs. Um, reach out to them, because it would be well worth your time to get together with them on, on one of the, the programs they have. Also, you can go back and listen to the podcast on falconry we did just a few shows back with Nate Danforth of Sky Islands Falconry. It's a good show and just super fascinating for me. All right, the next thing I wanted to touch on was just last week, we held our 100th birthday party. Uh, we did this at the Rio Salado Audubon Center in Phoenix. And well, I don't know what to say other than the fact that I am just more inspired and motivated than ever to continue my work with the Arizona Wildlife Federation. The last hundred years, this organization has, you know, of course it's a hundred years. They've had their ups, they've had their downs, but they have been an absolute instrumental player in the conservation of Arizona's wildlife, our public lands, our continued access as sports people, um, outdoor users of all types. It was just it was a gathering of so many integral folks to conservation in our state that uh, it was almost overwhelming. Too many people to talk to, for sure. But, you know, we, we heard from folks like Representative Cook, Director Broshite, State Parks and Trails, oh, Bill Brake, past uh, commission chair for the Arizona Game Fish, Fish Department Commission. So just so many wonderful people even heard from our governor it was it was a fantastic event and uh, again just absolutely inspiring so let's see housekeeping i guess we will get back to our kind of regular scheduled event announcements on our next show coming up here in two weeks um, but in the meantime i just wanted to jump right back in to our uh, our interesting discussions with conservationists from around the state and this one is no less interesting than anything we've done before. In fact, it was absolutely fascinating to me. We are going to be talking with Jeff Gagnon of Arizona Game and Fish Department. Jeff is a scientist who studies wildlife movement across our state. Um, and some of our wildlife, like mule deer and pronghorn and elk, can move quite great distances. 
There's all kinds of issues um, in today's modern world with wildlife migrations, you know, whether that be highways or solar fields or things like this, things that interfere. This is the kind of stuff Jeff looks at. Um, he's been doing it for 20 plus years and is a just a wealth of knowledge on the subject. So, you know, uh, clean energy transmission is going to become a larger and larger thing out west. Obviously, it's important that we make this transition to clean energy, but we need to do it in a way that does not uh, fragment our public lands, does not interfere with wildlife movements, and um, you know that's kind of what this uh, this podcast is about. So lots to learn here, um, and definitely worth your time. So please stick around and listen to that, and I will catch up with you after the show. Thanks so much. All right, Jeff. Well, thank you for being here. Um, let's let's start with uh, well, tell everybody who you are, where you're from, how how you got involved in this work, your title. What what do you do on the day to day? Yeah, okay. So my name is Jeff Gagnon. I work with Arizona Game and Fish Department Wildlife Contracts Branch. We have a, a highways and connectivity group that mainly deals with uh, habitat connectivity, wildlife vehicle collision mitigation, and how to kind of resolve some of those needs where they might be. And I live in Arizona. I've lived in Arizona most of my life, lived in the Flagstaff area for a good chunk of my life, more in central Arizona now. And I got into this work originally. I've always been an avid hunter my whole life and and grown up camping and hunting. And I knew when I, you know, had the opportunity to go to college, I really wanted to be to do something in wildlife. And so I was able to kind of land in there. Uh, Northern Arizona University has a wildlife management program. And I was able to uh, get into that and work my way through that process and and get a job with Game and Fish along the way. And, and also was able to get a get my master's through Northern Arizona University uh, studying um, elk and, and uh, traffic volume oh, wow. um, interactions. And so just kind of went from there. And I got, you know, I started working with the department on, you know, as at you know an intern level probably about 1997 and i'm still in then i picked up a full-time job a little bit later and i'm still just kind of plugging away there so i'm mm-hmm. i'm in about 27 28 years something like that working on a lot of this stuff oh wow right on well i'll tell you what wildlife migration corridor science is kind of still relatively a relatively young science it's not something we've been looking at for a long time but you know, outside of vehicular collisions and accidents um, and safety, why why is identifying these corridors and paying attention to this stuff important? Yeah, you know, to go, to go back to part of that, um, you know, biologists have actually been looking at migrations a lot longer than we realize. It's just we have the tools and technology now mm-hmm. to better address that. So, you know, some of the early studies on... You know, elk in Arizona, for example, they they would put collars on animals, being just like a visibility collar, and then they say, "Oh, we saw this uh, this elk in Unit Nine, yeah. and then you know, two months later, we saw this elk in Unit Seven, so there must be a migration there." Right. But as far as um, you know, now we've got technologies like GPS collars, which are huge for helping to gather some of this information, and and they give us you know pretty real time data you know, uh, up, uplink a location every couple hours or even less in some cases. And, and that allows us to 
you know, study those movements in more detail rather than we know it goes from point A to point B. Now we can figure out where it goes from point A to point B. And so it's really important to um, look at these corridors because, you know, these are what wildlife need in many cases to survive. It might be going from a winter range to a summer range, um, you know, and, and they just need that for survival or, you know, just being able to move across the landscape um, and we want to be able to address, is there something in their way so we can help, you know, mm-hmm. keep that from happening and, and allow their movements to, to freely happen. So they, you know, as far as, you know, with human development going on, a lot of these migrations have the potential to be blocked. And so understanding where those movement corridors are can help us make decisions that allow us to coexist as humans with wildlife mm-hmm. in some of those situations. Right, right. Yeah, I've, I've heard, um, and, and here I am just spinning out rumors and hearsay stuff that might not be accurate, but um, there's a, a new hospital uh, planning to be built or being talked about being built in Flagstaff. And I've heard one of the arguments is uh, that area that they're planning building it is a is a wintering ground for uh, the Flagstaff mule deer herd. And they've already lost a lot of that, apparently. But. Yeah, and I'm 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 familiar with Flagstaff, but I I can't really speak to that yeah, particular situation. I don't situation want anybody to hold me to that anyway. <laughs> That's what I hear. Um, all right, I, I've I've seen presentations that you've given on on some of this work um, that that you're involved in, and and I'm not gonna lie, the maps have been just exquisite. Um, these dot maps that you guys create mm-hmm. um, from this telemetry data you get from these collared animals. Can you explain some of the work that goes into that and some of the results you get from it? Yeah, and, and like I said, the the um, the technology we have now allows us to really hone in on some of the, the wildlife movements. And so to be able to gather that data, obviously we have to capture the animal. Mm-hmm. We do that in various ways. It might be, um, you know, with helicopter, we use helicopter uh, to capture pronghorn and mule deer and, and sometimes elk. Uh, we'll use things like uh, box traps, large box traps called clover traps to capture elk, sometimes deer, um, you know, we'll sometimes dart, use tranquilizers basically to dart animals and, and, you know, be able to go and and put collars on them. And so once we have the animal captured, it comes down to putting the collar on them and the collars we put on, um, depending on the animal, say for a deer might last three years and we put these collars on the animal and they, um, they basically, you know, once we let them go, they go across the landscape and tell us where they're going. They'll take, you know, locations every two hours is usually what we do. Mm-hmm. And so those dot, the dot map you're talking about is usually you're seeing an animal every two hours, what they're doing it gives us pretty detailed information. And then those collars, as the batteries get low, um, they have a release mechanism that allows them to drop off on the ground and we'll go in and pick those collars up off the ground so they don't have to wear them for the rest of their lives. Yeah. And how long do those batteries last? Uh, again, it's about three years. Um, okay. And for, for certain animals, smaller animals are going to be less, larger animals are going to be more. Yeah. The more battery that you can carry, the longer they'll last. But we just tend to do the drop-off um, just about when the batteries run out, we'll drop, drop them off so that we can go find them and, and mm-hmm. pick them up. So I'm, I'm just curious, you know, we, we're collecting this data now and and you've got a pretty clear picture of what uh mule deer and elk are, are on the landscape are doing now would that be accurate to say well yes and no we have an accurate picture of what some of the elk and deer are okay. doing now 
But because we can't collar every animal, mm-hmm. we have um, basically data gaps that right. still can always be filled with additional data okay. collection. Gotcha. So I, I'm just I'm curious, you know, I wonder what, what the landscape was like, uh, you know, before, before we started mm-hmm. um, keeping an eye on this and before we put in our big highways and things like that. I wonder if there were longer migrations. And I believe there were. And I, and I think that um, one good example of what we see here in northern Arizona, for example, we have a couple of migrating herds we've been following. Um, one of them we call our Peaks Deer Herd. And they migrate from the Grand Canyon to Flagstaff um, to mm-hmm. the peaks, which they still have the ability to to do that because there isn't really major roads in the way. But if you look at any of the other migrations, you see them almost, they hit the highway and they don't go anymore or they'll turn and go down along the highway. Mm-hmm. Um, examples of that are like our, our pronghorn herd that's you know local to us here in Northern Arizona. There's a herd that, that you know, summer's close to Flagstaff and then it follows I-40 and then it goes down to Prescott along 89. And I don't, I can't imagine Pronghorn did that. Yeah. You know, traditionally. And, you know, what we see is animals safe, you know, the Pronghorn that are close to the Grand Canyon, um, you know, south of the Grand Canyon, they're going south to um, I-40 and stopping, but the animals from south of I-40 are going all the way down to Prescott and and Jerome. So my guess is, is those migrations were all one migration at, at some point and the roads have completely changed that. So right. for an animal to sur- survive, to get from summer to winter range, um, so that they say there's a snowstorm and they need to get to low, to low levels, they have to forced to go whatever way the roads make them go. So mm-hmm. I think that's, what's, what's really happened here in Arizona versus say, you know, Wyoming has, you know, documented one of the longer migrations they have um you know it's it's a they've got you know deer and pronghorn that make these these major migrations and elk too and and there's just not a a lot in their way so they can still kind of traditionally move or move like they traditionally did but even if you look at those as they get to the southern end of those and they hit a major interstate then it kind of stops right there interesting um, yeah, that was definitely one of the, the biggest takeaways I got from your maps or, you know, these, these major highways, um, and interstates might as well have been oceans or walls. Um, and that's not to say animals don't cross. We see them cross cause mm-hmm. you know, that can end up in, in accidents in a lot of cases, but, but yeah, I couldn't believe just the, the fragmentation there. It was, yeah. And it depends on the animal. So, so, you know. You know, for elk, elk even, you see elk get hit on the roads uh-huh. all the time. And, and you know, up in northern Arizona along I-40 and I-17, you know, we, we, we've seen, you know, quite a few animals, almost almost 85 elk a year we've ca- we've seen on, killed on I-17 and probably close to 60 elk a year killed on I-40. You know, that's those are some numbers we collected when we were doing actual road kill surveys. And... Those animals, if you look at the GPS movement data, they're still not crossing that much. Mm-hmm. It's like, so there's a fragmentation, but when they decide they're, they need to cross, may, maybe it's because it's, you know, they don't have water on one side of the road and they want to get to the other side or whatever it may be, their chances of getting hit by a vehicle are pretty high. Mm-hmm. And so you've got that um, fragmentation, even though we still have high collisions. Now you look at a pronghorn. The pronghorn in this area, they, they haven't crossed I-40 in this area as long as anybody can remember. Really? And, 
in the pronghorn north of I-40 associated with Wapaki National Monument, you know, kind of over towards Valley and this northern Arizona area. Some of those are are genetically different across those roads, even the smaller roads. Wow. Cause cause this fragmentation. And so those animals are even more uh, affected by by roads. And so, you know, basically that's their home ranges or whatever yeah. the road dictates. That, that's interesting to hear that. Uh, years ago, I wrote, read uh, David Quammen's Song of the Dodo. Um, anyone who's interested in natural history, I'd highly recommend it. But um, it looks at ecology and evolution through the lens of of islands and what happens on islands. But uh, one of the interesting things I remember in that book was there's, and of course it's been years ago, I'm going to screw this up as well, but I only know enough to get myself in trouble here. But there's a uh, population of pocket mice, pocket mice are kangaroo rats, uh, big uh, interstate cuts through the middle of their habitat. And they're, you know, uh, I guess reproductively, isolated from other populations. Mm-hmm. It's like a, a key, lock and key mechanism that separates them from, from similar species. Uh, but this highway has been there long enough that both of populations on each side have evolved where they can't mm-hmm. uh, reproduce anymore. So wow. thus creating two species if you follow that biological species concept. Yeah. yeah and, 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 you know, and we're not quite to that level yet sure. with pronghorn, but it's, you know, it, it's pointing in, in directions like yeah. that if you don't, you know, do something to address it. Yeah. That's very interesting. Um, <clears throat> I'm wondering that this science, and I've heard it said before that Arizona, um, is, is a leader in the science on this migration. And, um, I'm wondering, you know, we, we're gearing up and we're talking more and more about clean energy transmission in the state. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is a thing that's going to happen. Um, and we, we'd like to see it be done in a way that impacts wildlife and fragments our public lands as little as possible. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering how relevant this science um, that's been done can be utilized in that case to make sure that, you know, good, good decisions are made when we're routing this energy across our our state and our public lands. Yeah, no, it's extremely relevant. And and, and we're actually um, tapping into some of that potential as we work with um, groups to develop, say, solar facilities, Mm -hmm. you know, where there's an interest and we have the data, we can say, hey, here's an area where animals are traveling through. Let's try to address, um, you know, connectivity for these wildlife through these areas and see if that works. And, and you know, we just recently did a capture, just, just this past weekend, we did a capture of pronghorn and mule deer, um, you know, just to the, just up in the Flagstaff area, looking at that exact same thing, trying to gather information to help guide decisions and, and work with, um, in this case, it was working with Babbitt ranches mm-hmm. on a, on one of their facilities and trying to make it wildlife friendly. And they've, they've worked with us and the group that they're working with to put corridors within the, um, within the solar facility. And, and so we're going back in and trying to see how well those corridors work so that when somebody else asks us these questions, we can say, yeah, this, this, uh, is working, you know, this is working well, this, or we have a better idea what, what the size corridors are best and how did it change or not change the yeah. movements of those animals. Outstanding. I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Um, so again, you know, while, uh, Arizona, Arizona game and fish department, I should say specifically has been a leader in the science here. Um, we're lacking some of these. I, I eventually, I want to get to 
these big highway crossings because uh, mm-hmm. I think they're vitally important. It's ongoing right now. But is, is there looking at other states um, in our nation or here at home in Arizona, is there other areas that this science is being utilized to help with connectivity, with wildlife corridors, and um, help keep them intact? Or You're talking about like using the GPS movement yeah. data? So when, when you talked about Arizona being a leader, part of that had to do with we, because we had so many callers on the landscape mm-hmm. in, ahead of a lot of other states. Okay. You know, we, we put some of our first GPS callers on animals along State Route 260 near Payson, um, back in 2001, 2002. Yep. And those were really some of the first GPS. That was, that, was, that was just about when they were going away from the one where you had to go out with a handheld yep. unit and find those animals. Yeah, that hasn't been that long. Yeah. yeah. And so those those came out, and, and we've been working along, mainly alongside ADOT, but but we've also have some, had some other opportunities um, to um, collar tons of animals. And so when it came time to start looking at corridors, we had the information for some of this stuff. Well, since then, other states have started to really pick up on that. And in Wyoming is a, is a great example of that. Wyoming's got a lot of migration work going on. They call her, they call her a lot of animals and they get a lot mm-hmm. of information. Utah is another one that's really picked up on that. And they're, they're using it for that same, same information, being able to identify corridors and see what's yeah. working and what's not working. And, and it's really starting to explode, you know, over the past couple of years since, since the collar prices have come down some in some cases, and then there also has been some interest in, um, you know, like the recent, uh, relatively recent Secretary Order 3362, um, which is a, is a Western big game uh, hab, uh, winter habitat migration initiative. And it, um, you know, it, one of the things that we're looking at is starting to gather information for that um, that order to be able to, guide habitat restoration projects or wildlife crossings or fence projects or whatever it may be. Okay. All right. So does any, is this, uh, is this data, is this information, is it ever requested in light of, oh, I don't know, I'm, I'm stretching here, you know, putting in drinkers, um, improving wildlife habitat. Uh, I'm sure there's other examples I'm fail, failing to think. I'm just wondering outside of Wildlife crossings. What was this data used for before we started looking at that? So, a, a lot of it we use for is um, co- like corridor work. Mm-hmm. Um, say you've got a area you know animals are moving through, um, maybe a migration corridor. Um, we can use that data to pinpoint where to focus our resources. Like if you've only got so much money to do grassland restoration for pronghorn, for example, you can use this data driven approach and say, Hey, you know, you know, here's a, an area that's only a quarter mile wide that we can really do good work on versus just looking at the landscape and saying, where do we put this money that we have? Cause it doesn't go very far if you don't have kind of a, a directed, um, you know, use of it. And we also use it. Here's another example we use it for is, is we use it to identify fences that are problematic on the landscape. So you look at the data and you can see that this animal stops in the middle of the forest and never goes past this line. You know there's a, a problem fence there. Right. And so there's so many fences out there. I mean, you could modify fences for the rest mm-hmm. of your life, but if you know where to focus those efforts because the animals are telling you. They have a larger um, impact. Yeah, so we yeah. can go and focus. We can, we can prioritize that way. 
Um, you know, and so those are, those are some of the, some of the main things we use them for is, is a lot of, you know, aside from, you know, identifying effects of roads and road crossings, more like habitat restoration, corridor, you know, management and, um, fences and, and anything, anything that you can think of that would help us make a decision on keeping those wildlife moving right as they need to. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and I'll mention, you know, here living in, in unit seven, seven West specifically, um, the, our deer herd is the same deer herd that occurs in unit nine. Um, and they, they manage those units together collectively, um, with that one, one quota, if I'm not, not miss, miss, uh, representing that here, make, just makes more sense to, to have that knowledge and be able to manage those animals. Yeah, absolutely. In, in that instance, um, that was interesting. So <clears throat> back in 2007, we were collaring deer along state route 64 for an ADOT project and we collared a, a handful of deer up there and they started moving down to the peaks and it was pretty consistent and a, you know, a pretty like, wow, there's a corridor there. And when the secretary order three, three, six, two came out, they had a section, um, for research mm-hmm. needs. And so we put out a bunch more callers with that, looking at that corridor, um, you know, being able to, you know, increase the data in that corridor. And so then once we put callers out and, and we started looking at that, you know, more and more, that's where the thoughts, Hey, let's, you know, the, the department started thinking about how seven and nine really are act as a, a unit that's yeah. bound by highways in, in, you know, in some, some degree or another. And so, you know, they were able to use that as, you know, kind of best available information to help make those decisions. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, in, in, in those instances, it can be helpful for, for management. Awesome. And do you have callers on the landscape right now? Yeah, okay. we do. In fact, we just put, uh, uh, some more callers out, um, last week and, you know, just, just replaced some of the callers we had out there, but we have, um, mule deer and pronghorn mainly collared right where pretty much where we're at right now yeah. in, in North. And, do you guys, I mean, I've heard this sort of thing talked about before, but not here in Arizona. Do you all, as a department, encourage hunters not to let those collars interfere with their decision to take an animal or not? Yeah, there's there's no rule against, yeah. um, you know, whether or not you take an animal with a collar. I mean, obviously it's nice if they don't because okay. that's data right. that sure. that's good, useful I, I to us. I can't imagine they're cheap either. No, I mean, you know, we got to capture the animal. Yeah. They're collecting data for us. Um you know, we, we do, you know, appreciate when they give them back, if they do harvest yep. an animal with a collar on it, but it's not, you know, it's, it, it, you know, I, I'd rather the collar stay out there. <laughs> do you, uh, do you, um, avoid putting collars on big old giant mature animals? Yeah, we, we do. And particularly, um, sometimes we'll actually not collar animals. We, we think, oh yeah, you know, it may be one that a hunter would be really Right, you know, yeah. interested in so, so in some instances, yeah, we'll 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 just let those go and okay, leave them. All right, um, yeah, boy, that would be a, a conundrum, you know, as as a hunter who doesn't have a wall full of giant bucks to to pass yeah. on some big beautiful animal because it's got a collar. Yep, exactly. You know, and, and sometimes when you know those animals, we we collar them, and three years later they're they're big. <laughs> right, know? right. I mean, yeah, it, it is what it is. Long. You know, and it's the, you know, we, we don't. You know, you know, it's not like you're going to get in trouble sure. or anything. It's just, it's just 
they're the information that we're getting from from each of those animals that we put out collars on is, yeah. is super valuable yeah. to us. And I suppose it probably wouldn't do any good to just collar collar the females. That would no, be because they do different data. they yeah. do different things. Yeah. Well, all right. So well, one other question I want to ask you. We had such a rough winter up here last year. I mean, it was a learning curve for me and my family living here mm-hmm. for sure. But um, did you see any difference in, in your collared animals? Or, or do you have access to information on, on whether there were higher uh, mortality on the roads? Or You know, I didn't anecdotally notice higher mortality on the roads. But I, as far as like the GPS collar data, um, you know, I didn't look at it in that way. We're still yeah. collecting it. Some of this, some of the analysis we'll do later when we get the collars back and, and, you know, we're done collecting data. So I don't really have anything that would be useful to that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was interesting. I'd even see turkeys in the middle of the day on the side of the highway, scratching out places where yeah. there was a bare spot with no snow. Yeah. No, I, I can't imagine. I mean, I, I, it's funny to me because, you know, these larger quadrupeds, they have the ability to migrate and move. But, mm. but boy, you know, I had a spring turkey tag here, and I didn't expect to see anything, but they're still there. Yeah. You know, and there was four, five, six feet of snow out there all winter long. Yeah, you know, I know, and I don't know, I don't recall hearing anything um, catastrophic here, but I know, um, you know, Wyoming, I know they saw some, you know, stuff going on with heavy snows. Yeah. And in Arizona, we actually have, you know, times you know like in the 1960s where we've had big snows and animals couldn't you know pronghorn couldn't get across the road because they were up against a fence and and Mm -hmm. lost animals that way so it can it can be a big deal and in some instances and that that's even more reason to keep some of those migration corridors open right well i think i think that's the big thing um you know we 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 all use these highways um and they, you know, the data says that they are a barrier to wildlife movement and gene flow and, and animals just being able to leave, live their lives and migrate, you know, away from big snowstorms like that. Um, am I accurate in saying Arizona doesn't have any of these large crossings as of yet? That's That wouldn't be accurate. That wouldn't no. be, okay. So Arizona has actually done quite a bit of work. Okay. So back in the... As far back as even in the 1990s, we started planning for okay. for some of these crossings. Um, some of our first big projects would be like State Route 260 east of Payson. So, so when I, we say large crossings, we can say underpasses. Mm-hmm. Like underpasses would be where animals go under the road. Overpasses would be where animals go over the road. And so we've been doing wildlife crossing work in Arizona. Um, and in that instance, we had uh, 17 crossings. Uh, elk suitable crossings along 17 miles. And some of those would have just been culverts okay. that were upgraded. So that was where we started really getting to the, to the large wildlife movement. But to get to overpasses, um, we have three of them um, up on Highway 93 near Hoover Dam. And those, those uh, overpasses were actually used GPS movement data to identify where to place those overpasses. And so if you drive up there, like you're going to Las Vegas, mm-hmm. you'll cross under three bridges that are like, kind of like bridges to nowhere is what I've heard people refer to them yeah. as, but those are bighorn sheep overpasses. And we have, um, we collared animals before and after we had cameras on them. Um, and we looked at collisions up there and we saw, for example, massive increases in the ability of sheep to cross the mm-hmm. road. It went from a two lane road to a four lane divided highway 
So you would think it would be a bigger barrier, but with the crossings, they substantially increase their ability to cross and wow, move, move that's between wonderful. ranges. And then we 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 did some some, you know, we were seeing you know during the original planning stages, there was about twelve bighorn sheep killed per year up there, mm-hmm. and that would have been back in the nineteen nineties when some of that was going on. When the project was completed with a few tweaks, um, we haven't had a collision since twenty fourteen. Wow! In there, so that's the fence you know, the importance of the combination right. of the fence and the crossings. Um, and then we have uh, on camera, for example, those, those uh, we had camera, uh, still cameras and video cameras on those three overpasses. And we saw, um, the first year we saw 250 sheep cross on those. And, and that was good. We were happy with that. But by, um, by the fourth year, we had 6,000 crossings. Wow. So there was this kind of learning curve, and we see that regularly as animals start to learn it, they exponentially start to use them, and generations right. start to use them. So, so there's three overpasses right there, and then another one that we have is is uh, down in Oro Valley area. Um, it's a it's a crossing that's it's an overpass that's combined with an underpass that's nearby that connect, connects the two uh, the Tortolina and the Santa Catalina Mountains. Yep, um, and it's going. It's going over a six-lane highway, and it's it's getting a lot of use. I mean, we see mainly mule deer use several thousand mule deer crossings. Um, well, interestingly, the underpass that's just down the road from it, a lot of the other animals like to use the underpass, like bobcat, javelina. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the combination of the two really, we, we've I think we have had thirty or thirty-five different species use those. So it really. You know, when we when we address these for large animals like, you know, pronghorn, elk, mule deer, whatever it may be, there's a ton of animals that are benefiting. And I think that's where, you know, we're able to work with ADOT and right. deal with safety concerns because, you know, people hit these animals on the road. Sure. And, and but also really benefit wildlife connectivity when we when we work together on those. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad you mentioned non-game species too, because I was going to ask about that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I would suspect those, uh, those sheep crossings probably don't get a lot of tortoise action. I think those Mojave tortoises are more of a lowland species than say our Sonoran desert tortoises. But, uh, but yeah, I can see a lot of benefit for a number of, uh, species outside of just game species. And, you know, it's, it's a funny thing because, you know, I'm a sportsman. I love hunting and angling. I love elk. I love deer, but I also love, songbirds. I love herps. I love native fishes that I don't get to angle for. Um, so, but there is a clear connection to, you know, all of this money and all of this work we do for these large charismatic game species. Um, you know, and that hate to say it, but trickle down effect, so Mm -hmm. to speak. And I'm not saying that that's the only focus we should have. Of course not. We should definitely focus on these other, other species as well, but there's a lot of benefit. Um, that, that goes into all species and all of the habitats for for the smaller, lesser thing, same yeah. things. But absolutely, and you know, and I mentioned that you know the thirty five species that we that we saw on uh, Stairout seventy seven. I mean, that's just the ones we can see on camera. Mm-hmm. I mean, the number, like you mentioned, right. herps and stuff. There's there's probably oh, yeah. a huge benefit um, there for for many right. many many species, and so so yeah, it's just a way to. I, I've found the way to really get at it is to really, you know, you know, a, a lot of the roads are ADOT's roads and they, they work, they, they one of their missions is a safe roads. And so really trying to make those two mesh is really important, but yeah. in the long run, it's, it's beneficial to 
all species. All right. Well, you know, corridor and connectivity work is 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 you know a, a topic throughout the West. Um, do most of the Western states are they addressing it the same way we are? Yes and no. I mean, it depends on on the states. I mean, there there's some that are a little further behind, and there are some that are further ahead. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and so we're we originally Arizona was way ahead, and we've sort of slowed down. A lot of it has to do with with budgets, sure, DOT budgets and stuff like that, and so. So then you start to see some of the, you know, other states in Nevada, for example, is, is really, you know, they really took off a few years ago and they put in, you know, I don't know, four or five overpasses mm-hmm. or something like that and a bunch of underpasses. And, you know, it just, it kind of depends. There's like these states get certain people in place and yeah. it tends to be able to sure. push them along, you know, okay. quite a bit. And so, you know, another example is um, New Mexico is a good example. They, um, they're in a way, as far as implementation, in a way, they're a little bit behind Arizona, okay. but their planning efforts are, are pretty, you know, pretty stellar right now. They've got yeah. a, a wildlife quarter action plan, you know, that's, that I, that I had the opportunity to help, help to help them develop along with a bunch of other folks, but, um, you know, that's that plan is now in place. So it gives them a kind of a roadmap. And I think that that's going to accelerate what they can yeah. do, you know, so it just depends on what states and, and where right. you're at. I would, uh, I, I would assume that Arizona, we're in a lucky position to have so much public lands. Cause I imagine in states with a lot of private land, things probably get a little bit more complicated. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's hard to, it, you know, it's hard to, to make a pitch for a wildlife crossing, for example, or a corridor, when you don't know what the outcome of that land status will be, yeah, you know, in the future, and and so if we're able to, you know, we're you know, and here in northern Arizona, for example, it's the Forest Service is really, you know, a big one, and you know, being able to, you know, for example, today I was out today with a forest, a uh, couple of the different forests, talking about quarters and connectivity, and and they. And when I could get them out there and show them, hey, these are where the crossings are going. This is how we need to look at it, landscape scale, bigger picture. And they can get that in their mind, then it allows, it's less likely that those areas of land that are corridors is, are going to, something's going to happen to them. They'll, yeah. they'll manage them in, in a direction that it's, that's positive for wildlife if they know that they need to. Awesome. Um, all right. Well, you, you said Arizona had slowed down for a little while, but things are currently ramping up, aren't they? Yeah, we're trying to, you know, we've got, you know, recently our um, our departments or our commission um, approved a, a connectivity resolution for our state, which helps us really kind of continue to focus on connectivity and, mm-hmm. and, you know, spend our time looking at how we can address human impacts on wildlife and wildlife movements and, and kind of make that, you know, all come together to where we can, we can coexist basically. And, um, and we're also working on, you know, we're working with ADOT trying to do some, some, uh, uh, wildlife crossings here in northern Arizona, doing some design on those crossings and trying to get it to a point where it would be considered shovel ready so that we're ready when there are opportunities. Um, recently, um, uh, Federal Highways released a, a wildlife crossing pilot program opportunity that many states applied for, and as did we. And, you know, if we're able to get some of those funds 
through that process, we're trying to just be in a place where we can implement and move on mm-hmm. and work towards towards additional funds. And you know, and you know, there are um, some of the groups that you know, uh, the the regional transportation authority down in Pima County. They're they're they've been around a long time, but they basically Pima County has has an excise tax, which where those funds are used for wildlife crossings, and that's where comes back to like the overpass on 77 that's where that those those funds came from so they're always kind of working towards more crossings down in that area yeah. as well um you know and, and it's really seems to be um going in a positive direction good right now so specifically the the crossings that you're working on now are these all on forest service land or any of them blm yeah the three we're working on right now primarily two of them are on i-17 um, one is just north of Munns Park, kind of in the Willard Springs area. Mm-hmm. One is around, around Kachina Village, just south of Kachina Village. And one of those is over here in the parks area. Mm-hmm. And the, the the backstory for those projects is back in the mid-2000s, late 2000, to, you know, 2000, say 5 to 2010, roughly, um, we were working with ADOT to come up with um, places to put wildlife crossings. And we collared animals, looked at collision data, and we identified a whole bunch of crossing locations and had a plan. And that plan has been shelved because there's just no money. Yeah. And so we've kind of pulled those plans off the shelves and said, hey, let's let's pick the most important locations that we can make the biggest difference with, and let's try to get those rolling. Mm-hmm. And so that's where these three crossings came from. And, and you know, I-40... Uh, the I-40 crossing at, at Oak Hill near Parks, it's more, you know, there's definitely one of the reasons it's, it's um, you know, ADOT's okay with working on it is because there's a lot of elk vehicle collisions in this area, yeah. deer vehicle collisions, but also, so we're benefiting, you know, the department's benefiting, benefiting from those wildlife not being hit by vehicles, but also the pronghorn herd that runs through here goes right up to the road there. And so, you know, if that goes on in, it addresses you know, some of ADOT's, you know, needs and some of the game and fish's needs and the wildlife needs. And so, and then over on, on I-17, it's a little bit different dynamic to some degree. I mean, it's really the same, but we've got um, an area there that where we, we see some pretty, pretty serious accidents. Yeah. And um, so it's a priority in that, that regards, you know, yeah, human life's a priority. So, sure. um, so, so, that's where we're focusing the, the, the most recent application we put in is for that, the one that's just North of uh, Munns park okay. was so that we could address some of the safety issues, but that Mike, the, the herd of elk there, they've, <clears throat> they've shifted their migration along the highway. Um, and they just, they can't cross that road very easily. So it's going to address elk. And then, like we said, it's going to address all the other species in that area as well. Um, Boy, it'd be so interesting to see how quickly they switch. You yeah. Know? Yeah, it, wow. it will be. It will be interesting. And, you know, we're also tying in any culverts that, that animals could use with, sure. with the fencing. Try, you know, we're trying to think of it as all animals, but yeah. um, trying to be strategic about it in a way that, you know, is palatable for everybody to kind of move through the process. Right. Um, boy, there's, that, uh, there's so, so much I want to ask right now. Um, all right. So to simplify this uh, for myself, I, I, I won't even pass that off for the listeners, but for myself. Um, so Arizona Game and Fish Department, 
they provide the science and the data that says, hey, these are the right places to do this. And you do that with in conjunction with Department of Transportation, of course. Mm-hmm. But but you're the experts here. Um, do you also participate in the design of the overpasses? Yeah, and it's interesting to ask that because we do, um, you know, ADOT will come to us and, and they work with us in, on project teams, design teams, and say, hey, does this, you know, fence look right? Uh-huh. Does this... You know, there's a slope leading up to this wildlife crossing. Is that right? They 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 will on some of the the wildlife specific projects, especially. They'll have us at the table having helping with some of these processes. And, and a really good example um, is where we've we helped with the Highway 93 Bighorn Sheep overpasses. We helped kind of with the design and the fencing, and we went through and made sure everything mm-hmm. looked good. And interestingly, on the Nevada side of the river they were working on a project, saw what we were doing and said, Hey, can you come over and help us? And so if you cross the river up there, you'll go under an underpass, beautiful underpass or overpass with bighorn sheep silhouettes on it. And so, um, our team was able to work with Nevada to help design that. And so as we work with ADOT on, on some of these projects, they, they know to come to us and and ask us about Mm -hmm. this design and we'll help them see all the way through. And, and that's, you know, that example I gave in Nevada, I mean, that's, that was a new highway through bighorn sheep habitat that you would expect, you know, it's a four lane road. You'd expect mm-hmm. it to, to fragment that habitat. Well, because of the number of crossings they put in and, and you know, address the design and put the fencing in right. And that opened, I think in, I want to say 2016 potentially, okay. maybe a little bit earlier. And that we've had zero sheep collisions with new highway through sheep that's habitat. Insane. And we've had. I think the last I saw, 22,000 sheep crossings. So those animals are just going back and forth like crazy through there. Wonderful. So, so yeah, so if you, if you, but if, if you didn't design it right, if, if they didn't like the crossing or you had gaps in the fence or you, you know, didn't design the escape ramp right, then you, you, you have to, you know, you'll, you'll get these accidents. And so having someone that knows what they're doing there really helps the success of these. Okay. And, and plus I should add, uh, post-construction monitoring mm-hmm. helps us identify any deficiencies right. or improvements that sure. may need okay. as well. Um, <coughs> now, uh, let's see. Department of Transport- Transportation, our Arizona Game and Fish Department, uh, at what level does Forest Service get involved, and does U.S. Fish and Wildlife do they play any role in any of this? Yeah, so I mean, it depends on the land. land obviously, the Forest Service yeah. is going to be, um, you know, in the case of the crossings we're talking about, Northern Arizona, the Forest Service is key to that. I mean, to mm-hmm. you know, they're they're going to, um, you know, kind of a, allow it to happen and help facilitate it, and and in some cases, like um, you know. Under some some circumstances, they're able to help with some of the the NEPA related to it, mm-hmm. and um, and like today, we we just went out with a handful of uh, forest biologists, and they're looking at, it, hey, how can we help facilitate this? Great. And it's which is great, and you know, we there's a a group that we work with here lo- locally. They're referred to as NALCA, Northern Arizona Landscape Landscape Connectivity Alliance. It's the three forests: the Kaibab, the Coconino, and the Prescott, and that we're working together across borders to address connectivity. And so it's, you know, animals like these pronghorn that start in Flagstaff and go to Prescott, they cross three forests. And so being able yeah. to work across these borders is pretty key right. to that. And so as far as Fish and Wildlife Service, I mean, they're always involved with, you know, any anything 
that might have a, a T and E nexus. And so, yeah. so they are involved, um, for consultation purposes. Gotcha. All right. Well, these are, these are big, expensive projects. Um, and our game and fish department, we don't operate off any kind of tax base from the public. Mm -hmm. Correct. Uh, so can you kind of lay out, and I know you've, you've touched on it already, where does this money come from? So the current, for example, the, Wild, the Willard Springs mm -hmm. overpass, that, that particular funding is through um, the Infrastructure Act, and, and okay. it's, we're, it's an application. We don't have the funding. We apply for the funding. And so our, we're on the hook for a, a match for that funding. Yep. And that's got to come through the state legislature. Uh, no, no, I mean it could. Okay, um, but in this case, we're Game and Fish is committing the non-federal match for for this particular okay, project. Okay, gotcha. Um, in the future, it's hard to say it, you right. know, where where that'll come from. But ultimately, there's going to be a need. You know, there's a need to apply for these funds and have the non-federal match to get those funds, unless you can get the money to just do the project outright. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of where it's at right now for this actual application. Applications in, ADOT helped us um, put it in. Game and Fish is committed to providing the non-federal match for that. Yeah, that. In gotcha. the future, in the future, it may flow differently, but yeah. that's just kind of getting getting the ball rolling. So, you know, having these infrastructure dollars available, is that what makes this the right time to get this done? Yeah. I mean, there's there's sort of been funds out there for quite a few years that allude to wildlife connectivity mm -hmm. in past infrastructure bills, but they were always really, you know, they're, they're really competitive with other DOT projects where DOT is trying to address safety yeah. uh, mainly. So this, this wildlife crossing pilot program is the first one that's actually just been uh, for wildlife crossings. And so, I mean, it's really like the, you know, it's unique in, in that it, it takes into, into account, not just safety and animals getting hit on the road, but it takes into account connectivity. So a project that has that doesn't have any roadkill is still eligible for these funds. That's that's pretty much unheard of until yeah until now. Like you know, say pronghorn, you know, I mean, if if you're not getting them killed on the roads, then you don't have in the past you wouldn't have had any way to address something like that. Right, right. That's interesting. Um, well. What have we left out here? I mean, are there any big picture items that, that go with this kind of work and this kind of science that we haven't talked about? Let me think. Mm. What about controversy? I've heard that there has been controversy about around wildlife crossings in other states. Yeah, I mean, there there are some. You know, you'll you'll hear folks mention taxpayers' dollars and you know uh -huh. stuff like that. And and what it turns out is is it comes down to a couple things. There's, if you try to put value on certain things, so, mm -hmm. so if, if, if a wildlife crossing costs a certain amount and you say, is it, you know, worth it to make it so pronghorn can cross the road for, for one example, you know, what's the value of, of conserving that pronghorn herd for future generations? I mean, it's hard to say what that is. You can't, it's just, it's there and, you know, we want our future generations to, to be able to see these pronghorn and have them not be, you know, completely separate, you know, genetically separate herds that could eventually, you know, there could be some issues with that. Sure. So, so it's hard to put a value on that to say to someone it's worth X amount right. of money. As far as on the, on the injury side, you know, one of the things we say is, okay, so, you know, 
if someone says that costs a lot of money, my response is, okay, so if, if you or one of your family members hits an elk on the road, what is that value to you? Yeah. You know, and there, there's values placed on those accidents, you know, federal highways try to place values on those accidents, but when it's your own family members or yourself, that value becomes a completely different number. Of course it does. You know? Yeah, you know, I, I realize I'm not the average person. I'm eating up with wildlife and habitat. It's all I've ever thought about since I was a child. But, you know, the safety element, you know, I, I live near an interstate, you know, and my wife drives it every day to go to work. Um, you know, my kids are on that interstate all the time. I've seen a ton of of elk and deer laid out on the side of the highways, not just here around parks, but Mm -hmm. also south on the 17th through that habitat. So it's not an uncommon thing. Mm -hmm. And elk's a big animal. Mm -hmm. Um, So the safety, the the gene flow, so we can have healthy herds of wildlife for future generations. Um, It's hard for me to see a downside. It's hard for Mm -hmm. me to see how anybody couldn't do anything but support work like this. But but again, I'm not your average person, but I I see the value. Yeah, and I think, you know, in, in... the feedback I'm getting, for the most part, it, it seems like most most folks are on board. Mm-hmm. They see the value. There are a handful that, you know, kind of still, you know, they they they'll have another. They'll think the money should be spent sure. elsewhere. Yeah. Which you know you can make that argument if you want. Um, but but a lot of people, you know, really can, you know understand especially around here say northern arizona when like you said you see these animals laying all over the place yeah you know or you hear about someone you know getting in an accident i mean i I think they've you know like uh, you know they've really tuned into the need for this yeah well you know a big part of my job is to to keep and maintain relationships down at the state legislature Um, and that's both on the right and the left sides of the aisle and i can tell you that uh, from the discussions i've had um i have not had any any negative talks Mm -hmm. regarding these crossings i think most of the folks that we we talk to are you know on the right side of the thing that's great news. So, all right. So, how about this? Um, for your your average um, hunter, angler, or, or just your average wildlife enthusiast, or sporting or environmental conservation organizations, what can folks do to help and support this kind of work? Well, I think you know, just getting the word out and being able to show how positive you know the work we're do- we're trying to do around here can be mm-hmm. for for all wildlife species, and and you know. It, it helps gain momentum when, when we've sure. got, got, you know, folks talking about it and supportive of it and, you know, reaching out to their, you know, whoever, whatever groups they may be involved with. And, you know, and I think it's, you know, it's one of those things that's, you know, it's kind of a win-win for everybody. It's hard to find where it's not, yeah. you know, no matter what the group is, there's, there's a, there's a positive side yeah. to it. Good for wildlife. Good for people. Mm-hmm. Right on. Well, Jeff, thank you. Um, thanks for, for doing this work. Thanks for coming and talking to us. And, uh, yeah, keep it up. Yeah. I like seeing this stuff happen, especially whenever it affects me personally right here. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks. Well, I hope you learned a lot in that talk with Jeff Gagnon from Arizona Game and Fish Department. And boy, I'll tell you what, I, I had the opportunity and privilege uh, that after we sat down and recorded, I got to ride with Jeff out to the site um, here near my park's home where there will be a potential overpass over 
Interstate 40 and, you know, arriving on site, seeing it in person and listening to Jeff talk about why that was the spot. It just kind of made it all come together for me and it made a lot of sense. And I cannot wait to see this thing get built. So it just, it's a fascinating subject. It's going to become more and more important as, as time moves by. So pay attention, keep an eye on this kind of stuff. You know, this is, this is what conservation looks like in the modern day. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's more, more important than ever. So with that, consider joining up, consider joining up with one of these great conservation organizations around our state and seeing how you can help and contribute. We have various critter groups, the Elk Society, uh, the Antelope Foundation, Quail Forever. We have groups like Arizona Wildlife Federation and Arizona Backcountry Hunters and Anglers and Audubon and the Arizona Trail Alliance. The list goes on and on. So if you're a generalist, there's a group for you. If you only care about one particular thing, there's a group for you. There's tons of opportunity. And not only are you doing the right thing by Arizona's wildlife, Arizona's public lands and access to those public lands, but you're doing the right thing for you. You are surrounding yourself with a bunch of great, thoughtful people. And, you know, that's just that's just a good way to live. So until then, remember the or I should say until our next show. Uh, we'll see you again here in two weeks. Until our next show, uh, remember that this podcast is made possible by the Arizona Wildlife Federation. The Arizona Wildlife Federation is 100 years old. You can support the Arizona Wildlife Federation by visiting the link in the show notes. Go check out our website, uh, see how we operate. And if you like what you see, you can certainly uh, support us. And by doing so, you will get our quarterly glossy magazine full of great information and articles about Arizona's wild places and wildlife. And I know you'll enjoy it. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again in two weeks. Mm -hmm.